Esme is in my thoughts a lot and that's going to be different for everyone because if you've if you've had an early loss you may not have had as much time to imagine your whole life with them you might not have been able to give them a name but there's still a little part of your heart that was dedicated to that baby even if only for a short time that love that you have for them that doesn't go anywhere that was Frankie Brunker our guest on today's episode Kate didn't do the interview with me due to logistics but said to me how moving she found the conversation and I just want to, I suppose, add a warning onto this that it is a pretty emotional conversation. We're obviously talking about stillbirth and the grief that follows. So I totally, totally understand if this isn't something that you are in the right place to listen to. Frankie is an amazing lady and she talks about what she went through, the decisions that her and her husband made in light of losing their daughter Esme and what she's doing now she's an author of a beautiful child's book she also writes a blog to support bereaved parents and i know that you'll find her story just another example of how amazing we are when it comes to talking about the stuff that's hard in the hope that it helps you feel less alone Kate, do you think that whilst people are in lockdown, they'll be brave enough to do more things like home testing? I think being in lockdown is an ideal time to do more home testing because when you're in lockdown, you're kind of in limbo. You don't really have the opportunity to do very much, but actually what you can do with home testing is find out so much about your fertility and whether you need to start making some changes to lifestyle. And that's why we're really chuffed to have Medichex sponsoring the Fertility Podcast. Because whether you're trying to get healthy before getting pregnant or investigating why you've not been getting pregnant, Medichex has a range of simple home blood tests developed with Kate to help you. Visit medichex.com to find out more. This series from the Fertility Podcast is talking about miscarriage. With staggering numbers of people affected daily by this, there's still a silence around it, feelings of shame. Along with the grief, there is the physical impact of loss and we wanted to explore this further over the coming weeks with a number of conversations from experts as well as people who have been through it. Unfortunately, there are so many reasons why miscarriage happens, whether it be genetic or placenta problems, infection or long-term health conditions you may suffer from, or sometimes we just don't know. We hope that by talking about it in this way, you will know that there is support and guidance available for you from groups, experts and organisations. To find out more about the support available, visit thefertilitypodcast.com forward slash miscarriage, where there will be listings to the range of organisations available, as well as all of these episodes. I'm now going to introduce Frankie, Frankie Bunker, who is someone that I met recently at the most gorgeous event put on by Lucy, who is mother of one on Insta, and you may have seen her Rainbow Running Clubs. Lucy put on this yoga day, which was just so indulgent, and I'm so glad I went, considering where we are now in lockdown and Frankie and I sat next to each other at lunch and got chatting, didn't we Frankie? That's right, yeah, I was really pleased to be able to connect with lots of other wonderful women and it was such a privilege to get to meet you as well Natalie. How did you find the day? How did you find Lucy? Oh well I I connected through 
L, Feathering the Empty Nest. So she posted about Lucy starting up these running clubs. And I thought, well, they sound absolutely amazing because I, I love running. And I just thought the, the concept of it sounded a really positive way to bring people together and to do something, to actually do something meaningful after you've been through something so traumatic and something that can be so restorative and rejuvenating. So it's not, it's not just the running, it is the yoga, hence the yoga retreat day. But I think she also runs yoga evenings and things as well. And she's been running a meditation series as well. And that's been especially helpful during this lockdown period. Well, I want to talk a bit about where we are now, but also about what's kind of been going on with you. I, I read one of your most recent blogs, which was really helpful, signposting people. But before we get there... Let's just talk a little bit about your book and your kind of route to parenthood that led you to write it. Because when you were telling me about it, I was like, we've got to talk more because I think it's such a lovely thing that you've done. So are you happy to just tell me a bit about your, what's your route to parenthood, really? Yeah, so um, I've always wanted children and I met my husband when we were both quite young and we were very romantic sort of head over heels in love quite early on and we would sort of daydream together about having a family but we were both sensible level-headed people so we thought well we'll, we won't rush into things and we'll bide our time we'll do things in the right order as judged by society you know (laughs) concentrate on getting qualified going to university uh, starting a career, buying a house together, getting married, you know, all these things we felt we had to get into place before that we were in a good list position. We're given. Yeah, you sort of go down, tick them off the list. And I think um, both of us, we were keen to have children of our own, but we weren't totally naive. We knew that it wasn't a given. So when we wanted to start having a family, we were kind of nervously optimistic I would say that we it would happen for us naturally my husband was absolutely gung-ho about it and said yeah this is what are you talking about this is absolutely going to be fine we'll make a baby first month of trying (laughs) I was trying to explain to it doesn't always work out that way but he he was actually right he (laughs) we were one of those fluke lucky couples that did concede the first month of trying and it almost seemed too good to be true because I just I just couldn't get my head around the fact that we were now actually pregnant. It was such a thrilling, exciting time. And every week of pregnancy, it was just um, just marvelling at everything that was happening to me. You know, the bump growing and the symptoms I was experiencing. I just, it sounds, maybe I'm sort of looking back with the benefit of hindsight knowing how it ended but I do feel like I did really embrace that time and I enjoyed it and I'm so glad that I did because sadly our daughter was stillborn when I was 38 weeks pregnant and it was a complete shock we didn't have any warning signs that anything was wrong and we just felt like well my husband actually asked me have you felt the baby move today and I said no and we then did all the things you're you're told to do drink a glass of orange juice lie down on your side really concentrate on feeling the kicks and there was nothing so we rang the hospital and they told us to go and do that and we said we'd already done it so they did tell us to come straight in 
and that was when we were told that our baby had died. But even on the way to the hospital, I was thinking, well, worst case scenario, I'll be having this baby by emergency C-section today. Yeah. We'd taken the car seat in with us in the car, um, just in case. And it was, I remember that car journey really well, that we were just silent on the way. And I was just desperately hoping to feel the baby move. But even at that point, I don't recall thinking the baby might have died. To me, that just, I don't, I don't know if it was just too horrible a, a thought to even imagine, but it just didn't I occur think so. that a baby yeah. could die that late in pregnancy after such a, a problem-free experience. So, um, yeah, it was, it was just a, a living nightmare that we were thrust into. And it just felt like an alternate reality that we were trapped in. And I was very conscious of the fact that I had all these family and friends waiting around us, waiting to hear news of us going into labour because, you know, I was over 38 weeks pregnant. So in theory, it could have happened at any time. And then my husband was having to make the phone calls to tell them that actually, yes, we are having a baby, but the baby's died. Yeah, I just can't imagine how horrible it was for him to make those phone calls. He went out of the room to do that. I'm so grateful he did because I don't think I could have managed to do it. But then I knew that there was a ripple effect because, you know, we, we both have sisters that have, have children. We knew that those children would have to be told. They were young, but they were old enough to know about the, the pregnancy. They were expecting a baby along with us. And it was really difficult for us to, to think how we were going to navigate it all. What I'm hearing that's fascinating is how quickly your thoughts go to other people rather than yourself and we do that I think in times of crisis we're like right what about everybody else and (laughs) and, and I'm interested in how it came back on you or was it an easier way to cope by making sure everybody else was okay in those initial kind of periods of, of going through it yeah, I mean, I think I quickly realised that I couldn't actually cope with taking on the burden of what everyone else was going through. We did become very insular quite quickly after breaking the news, as it were. I do remember that we didn't even tell our siblings straight away. We told our parents and we said, look, we don't want anyone else to know right now because there was a waiting period. There was a time between us being told that our baby had died and actually having our baby in our arms and I think we needed to sort of get through to that point before we could kind of allow the rest of the world to know in a way and I think we were conscious that my I think my sister might even have been at a a wedding of her husband's family or something so I, I sort of was quite aware there was other stuff going on and I couldn't I couldn't sort of ruin their their whole day and their whole weekend. It was a Saturday that we found out our baby had died. And we just needed to be in a little bubble for a bit and just yeah. kind of get through the next bit and then figure out how we were going to cope with the next stage. And even when it came to planning Esme's funeral, we were thinking, right, well, who can we have come to this? How can we manage this? We decided, I don't know if it's the right or wrong thing, but we decided we didn't want our 
niece and nephews there because they were so young we thought well it's actually too difficult for everyone to to have to factor them in it's not an an ordinary funeral you're not going to be able to talk about the memories that you shared with that person and just the thought of them seeing this tiny coffin is it's something that I have some regrets over but I can't change it now. It's what felt right at the time to kind of protect them in a way. But I soon realised that actually, although that's that's often our instinct, it's not really doing the children around us many favours in the long run. Because I have come across people who did make that decision as well with living children they had. So these were siblings. And they said, oh, no, they shouldn't come to the funeral. It's going to be too sad. It's going to be too strange or even at the hospital, you know, earlier on. So they didn't come and meet the baby at the hospital, for example. And um, yeah, those siblings, as they've grown up, they've actually been able to articulate how they've actually felt angry about being excluded. And it is different for every family. Some families will know that was the right thing and they will be able to be confident in that decision they made. And they know that, yeah, they, they have no regrets over it. But you can't really predict how children are going to come to terms with that information. And their development is such that you you can't predict how they're going to feel about it later on. Some children are going to feel very upset that they weren't included at that time. And others, they might well feel glad that they weren't subjected to all of that, you know, that that trauma as well. I think it's when you were just talking about the the process of that decision making and when I was listening to you talking about thinking about it I was getting emotional thinking about the the physicalities of a baby's funeral and I think your rational mind as an adult is to protect children and I think that has to be you have to give yourself that peace that you followed your instinct. I think the conversations are so vital along the way, but I was thinking, gosh, like getting really teary hearing you describe it, thinking I'd be exactly the same. You'd want to just protect other children because like you say, how can you put it into words? And, and I think the, the impact of this is so unpredictable because you've not really got any reference hopefully that it's not something that you've been through before I just want to go back if we may just a little bit the time in hospital and just how you feel you were looked after or supported through the kind of the, the different stages of what you had to go through well as I said we found out our baby had died on a Saturday so that might have had some impact on who was around to support us. The bereavement midwife wasn't available initially but the midwife that sat with us as we were told the news and told us about the next steps she was absolutely incredible. I, I'm, I have to apologise I can't remember her first name but I do know that I, I took note of her surname and it was Angel and I thought mm. wow this is really weird but it did feel like we were in the presence of someone a little bit otherworldly the the way that she you know just really was there I can't remember if she actually held my hand but it felt like she was holding my hand as she was talking to us about the next steps I remember I was desperate to just get it get the induction process started I hadn't actually gone into labor naturally so the next step was to bring on my labor to have the baby and my husband was saying, oh, we've got to get, we've got to get this baby out. You, you've got to give her a C-section. I was saying, no, I don't want that. 
I want to be able to give birth to my baby. I want to still be able to deliver my baby naturally. And the midwife was very supportive of that. I think it is quite unusual for parents to be given permission, as it were, to have an operation. Some do push and say and insist that is what I need and what I want. But I think the uh, the general consensus is that for a mother to go through the process of delivering naturally, if she can, is better all round. Okay. Um, but yeah, I just I remember being quite horrified that I had to wait for the pessary to kick in and for labour to to then be able to start. And <clears throat> I just I just thought that was going to be agonising. But this midwife, she was really gentle and she urged us to go home to rest in our own beds, to sort of start to come to terms with the news. And I'm really grateful that she did that because the thought of having been in the hospital all that time, because it did take um, 24 hours for the pessary to kick in for us to be able to have labour induced. I think it would have been um, even worse to then have to go home and be completely shell-shocked and empty arms and that was the first time that we'd been home if that makes sense yeah totally um so we had to go home and then return to the hospital the next day and the next day was Sunday so it was all completely different midwives on duty and the bereavement midwife still wasn't available so we just had to get on with it with whoever was there to help us and it, it it was quite obvious to me that some of those midwives hadn't been in that situation before they hadn't had to deliver a stillborn baby I think they did the best they could but I don't think they really knew the implications of what they were offering so for example they said I could have whatever pain relief I wanted and I was quite scared of giving birth I was quite scared of the pain so I sort of readily agreed to that without thinking through what I'd been told in my birth classes about the effects of certain pain relief drugs so I agreed to have this diamorphine when my waters broke and my contractions really ramped up. No one knew how close I was to delivering because labour is so unpredictable. But I was less than an hour and a half away from actually having my baby. So having the, the tablet then, it meant that I was very out of it by the time I actually had my baby in my arms. And I can't really remember that time. And it's... It's difficult to say whether that's because it was so traumatic and upsetting, so my brain has kind of <laughs> blocked out those memories, or if it was the effect of the drug. But mm. I wish that I knew. And I'm just glad that my husband was fully aware of what was going on. So when I talk to him and we look at the photographs together, I can remember that time a little bit through that. But it would have been nice, you know, I, wouldn't, I wasn't offered gas and air, for example, to start with I wasn't offered there's no way I was offered an epidural I know it's very difficult for for lots of labouring women to get epidurals in even normal circumstances but I you know these are things that should in my opinion should still be available to women that are going through this sort of experience whether it's having to deliver a baby during a late miscarriage or stillbirth it is like a delivery it is a labour and mm. I think um you should be able to talk through what kind of birth experience you want. And it's not going to be anything like the birth experience you'd hoped for, but you can still, you can still have options. And I think that's important for midwives and bereaved families to know. And I'm, we'd been given some leaflets from SANS to go home with, 
I don't think they had spoken about planning your birth and the delivery. It was about making memories after the babies arrived. But if you're not thinking about how you're going to get through that process of giving birth and what kind of pain relief you might be offered and what you might want to agree to or not want to agree to, that can have an impact on your ability to make those memories. Because when I spoke with Jen from SANS, she spoke about their National Bereavement Care Pathway. And I wonder whether that part of the conversation is now a part of their pathway from the different conversations that they're having with bereaved parents. Yeah, I would hope so. I mean, this, this was back in 2013. So I think they have made some strides forward in acknowledging that 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 is an important aspect of bereavement care and it's not just about talking to parents about consenting to a post-mortem and things like this I mean we did get to meet the bereavement midwife on the Monday so Esme was born in the early hours of Monday morning the bereavement midwife came to see us that morning and she sat with us and talked about funeral options and things like this and that was that was quite an important part of our bereavement care I would say we'd already consented to the post-mortem by that point and that's that's covered by doctors usually but the bereavement midwife again can be a segue to helping inform you and helping guide you through that process not all hospitals have bereavement midwives and as in our experience not all of them are available all the time so it's quite patchy I think Well, again, I know that in the work that SANS are doing, Jen had talked about the bereavement suites and potentially, I think, having access to more people, like you just said, the bereavement midwife. So let's hope that there is more support in place. But there was an element of it, which I'm thankful to hear. It wasn't, I think you're saying you weren't totally left. And whilst there were elements that weren't, obviously how you'd you'd in an ideal hope the situation to to play out as there was certain guidance and hand-holding which is so so important um yeah and now you are an author of a book called precious little people and that's how we got chatting and you also are a parent you've got two children is that right so I have two living children. Two living children. I, I, always, um, I always describe it that way because Esme will always be my child as well. So when people say, oh, you've got two children, I, I say something like I've got two living children or two children at home. And other people might not pick up on that. But for me, it's quite important to say that, to feel like I'm not excluding Esme. In my mind, you know, she is my first child. She'll always be child my third child if you like and how do you feel people or find people react to when you say that because I've I've I understand that from having more conversations with people who are bereaved parents and I totally get it and admire it and I'm interested in how (laughs) that then affects the conversation and how you feel about that because sometimes you might be in the mood to explain and other times you might not yeah I think for me it's always something that I like to to talk about for me it feels better it feels um the right thing to do if you like the times that I haven't mentioned Esme I've gone away thinking oh I'm so sorry you know I'm apologizing to her in my head and 
it might sound ridiculous because I'm sure she would understand if she was even if she was aware but I think what makes us afraid to talk more openly is that you never know what reaction Mm. you're going to get and it does make the conversation slightly awkward at times some people visibly recoil when you explain that you had a baby who died some people will do the sort of sympathetic head tilt and they'll they might say things that are nice but they jar a little so I had one woman at a play group so my son who was born 13 months after Esme he was probably only a year old at the time as she said oh is he your first and I said oh well he's not actually my first living child I did have a daughter but she died she was stillborn and she said oh gosh that's so sad that must have been really hard and I thought well it is really sad and it's still bloody hard (laughs) And I think that's what a lot of people don't seem to realise. That but it's a present, it's a present feeling. It's, a, yeah, it's an ongoing you, grief. Yeah, something you carry with you forever. And for some people, it might be a sad experience that they can put in their past. I remember we went to a florist um, around the time of Esme's first birthday because I wanted to order some flowers for her grave. And it was actually the woman who'd organised Esme's funeral flowers. And she'd been so kind, so generous. She'd given us them for free. We hadn't ordered masses. We'd just ordered quite a simple bouquet. But that gesture meant a lot at the time. So I wanted to go back and you know, repay her kindness, if you like, by ordering flowers for her first birthday. And she saw that I was pregnant again. I was very obviously pregnant again. I had quite a big pregnancy bump with my son, the pregnancies being so close together. And um, she said, oh, I'm so glad that you're pregnant again. I said, yeah, it's really nice that we have you know, another child on the way and we're just really hoping that everything's going to be okay. And she said, oh, yes, my daughter, she had a terrible miscarriage and it was so sad. And But now she's got these lovely children and she's so happy now. I hope the same happens for you and your previous experience will all be like a bad dream one day. I just thought you got it so wrong. You know, some people might be able to process it that way. But for me, you know, I've just been telling you, we are holding a celebration of Esme's life. We want to lay flowers on her grave for her birthday. She's very much a part of our family story still. And to hear her dismiss Esme as, you know, oh, you'll just forget it like it was a bad dream. It was really painful and upsetting. And I could maybe deal with a comment like that a bit better now, now that I'm years on. I've heard it all. I've heard (laughs) a whole range of of reactions. And because I'm so used to having this grief with me, it's not so raw. It's not so painful. I don't need that kind of validation from other people like I used to either. Um, It's kind of well, I know how I feel about her. I know how the people I care about most feel about her. And I can deal with other people's ignorance or insensitivity a little bit better now. I think it would be really beneficial for people to hear that frankness from you. And I think it's also really important to to say that everybody will react differently and there's no right or wrong way, is there? And I think there's also that issue with the whole kind of infertility narrative that others can say the wrong thing that we then have to, we have to process, we have to absorb and take on and deal with. Mm. And 
I think the, these types of conversations are hopefully what can help people that are working out how they process and how they go through it. And I, I really thank you for being so honest about all that you've said, you know, so far, because it's, it's such an important and difficult conversation to have at the same time. And your book, which is a children's book to help those conversations that are even harder we touched on them before when you were trying yeah. to make the, the decisions about the, the the children coming to the funeral and I love that you have approached it with this more poetic way with rhythms and lovely illustrations and I just want you to kind of um try and like sum up what this book is it's championed by sans and i know that there's other books that people can access and we'll mention your blog as well which i know you're kind of keeping up to date especially we're speaking in lockdown and i know you've been writing support for people for now tell me a bit about the aims you have for the book to help children deal with this do you know my thoughts on the book have evolved so much in the time that i've been working on it because I initially, I was so desperate to give families the tool to use with the children in their family to help them explain what had happened, whether it was a miscarriage, a stillbirth, a neonatal death. I just thought they deserve to have something that they can have as a resource to to guide them through it all. It's such a, such a nightmare scenario that you just, you're just in shock in those moments when you're thinking, how, how on earth am I going to deal with all of this? How am I going to break this news to, to the, the children in the, in the family, whether it is nieces, nephews, or other children you have at home, so siblings? Um, and actually, over time, I've realised that the children will receive the news and they will deal with it however they are able to. You can't really control or help that in a large way and it's actually this book I think is is very helpful for adults <laughs> as much as children because I think we bring our own hang-ups about death and about grief when we're broaching the subject with children. Children are very literal and they are learning things about the world all the time and in my experience with my son for example he has just developed this understanding over time that he has this sister who came before him who died. And to him, the curiosity around you know, what does dead mean, it was just as much as the curiosity you have over, oh, what's, what's this new vegetable you're giving me? There wasn't the emotion attached to it that we have as adults. We have an understanding of of what a little person means to us, what a baby growing means to us. I think even young children that might have been aware of a pregnancy, it's quite an abstract concept for them still. I mean, I remember when I was pregnant with my third child, my son was nearly two and a half, and I would tell him, oh, your, your baby sister is growing in my tummy. Do you want to feel her kick? And he would just be like, mm, okay. And feel it and then happily toddle off and it was it was just a weird thing that was happening I suppose it wasn't even weird you know it was just something that was part of his reality at that time I was thinking well if this baby dies then he's not going to feel the sadness that we feel about it that was my instinct and 
that might have been different if he'd been a bit older, if he had a different personality. Every child is going to be different. I remember my nephew, who was three when Esme died, three and a half, he was very upset that she died. But he did, he did come to terms with it quite readily in that he understood what had happened. My sister was very frank with him and told him, Auntie Frankie's baby has died and we're all very sad about it. And he would, he had this beautiful way of, I don't know, like bringing, bringing a touch of humour or making people feel comforted during that time of grief. My sister was crying a lot around him and I was quite worried about that. But he would say things like, oh, mummy, we can still think about her. And they would see a ladybird when they're out and about and they'd say oh look that might be Esme visiting and he would be mm-hmm. laughing and chasing after it or he'd be drawing pictures of ladybirds and sending them to me and for him it wasn't this desperately awful thing that had happened it was it was something sad that had happened and we all wished it had been different but it wasn't you know dragging him down into the depths of despair like it was some of us And I think we can learn a lot from children in terms of just sort of being mindful of where you're at and how you can process that information. I think that's what I wanted to get across in the book as well. You know, that you can talk about these babies that have died and you can say, we miss them, I wish they were here. But you can also think of them and smile. You can feel like they're still with you in a lot of ways. And, you know, Esme is in my thoughts a lot and that's going to be different for everyone because if you've if you've had an early loss you may not have had as much time to imagine your whole life with them you might not have been able to give them a name but there's still a little part of your heart that was dedicated to that baby even if only for a short time and I think that that love that you have for them that doesn't go anywhere and it can actually grow with you it's not the same as seeing your child grow up, but you can still sort of have them in your mind and your heart. And that's what I really wanted to get across in this book, that when you think about your baby or your babies who died, it doesn't have to be this sad, mournful period of grief. It, it can bring you some joy as well and give you a lot of hope that there's going to be you know, lots of happy memories to still make with them within your family. I love that it's described as a sensitive beauty. I think that's perfectly explains what you just described. And I think it sounds lovely. And I know that you made a special effort to appeal to a diverse background, a range of people from diverse backgrounds with the artwork, which I I think is really important as well, because all too often people can't identify because they can't see themselves in maybe the literature that is presented to them. And so I think that's that's yeah that was that was really important to me Uh, I I looked at a lot of the books that were available and they just they didn't feel like the right books for us for a lot of reasons but um, I did think a lot about people from different backgrounds who'd experienced different types of losses and I thought well what is there for them there's nothing and it it made me feel really frustrated and disappointed and I thought well if I'm creating something that I would be happy to use, I want it to be something that more than just my family is happy to use. I want it to appeal to lots of people. I want it to help 
so many more people. And I think that's that's something really positive about Esme's legacy. So she's not only enriched our lives, our family, and made us all feel more grateful for what we have and all those kind of things. But I just, I want her to have had an impact on the world and to have helped other people. Now we're talking whilst we are currently in lockdown. And I know you shared a blog just recently about kind of coping through this phase. And I'm just wondering if you could share like one thought. Obviously, I'll put a link to the blog for people, bereaved parents who might find that being, you know, in isolation is really intensifying their grief. Yeah. Do you want to just tell me what you'd, if you were to give a bit of advice to someone right now, if they are finding it pretty tricky to work out how they're feeling, because it changes so much day to day for all of us. But if you're trying to grieve, what would you say? I would say it's so tricky. I've, I've been thinking a lot about people that are going through this experience right now. And I, I remember very clearly how awful it felt to be going out into the world. You felt scared, you felt anxious, you felt like you didn't recognise the world you lived in anymore. And it's, it must just be so much more magnified going through this experience in a pandemic. To those people, I would just urge them to, to seek out people who can help them. You might feel very alone. Everyone that has been through this experience feels so alone at first. Everyone that I've spoken to has felt that way. They feel like this can't possibly have never happened to anyone else. And as soon as you find other people who have an inkling of what you've been through, whether it's through the Miscarriage Association, whether it's through SANS, whether it's through the, the Tommy's online support group, there, there are people out there who you can reach out to and who you can find some way to relate to and feel like you're not alone. And it's a shame that it, we're sort of forced in this environment to do that online or there are telephone support helplines available and, and open at this time. That face-to-face connection, I don't think, for, for a lot of people, you can't beat that. Um, but there are places that are offering online support via Zoom, so you can actually see someone while you're talking to them. So I think it's important to, to recognise that that support is still available out there, because for some people, that is going to be what really helps them. And also I, I wrote a lot in those early days. I wrote down in a journal. My mum, I remember she got me a, just a blank lined notebook for me to write in. And that was so helpful. It just got out some of the, the pain so it wasn't kind of trapped inside. And you can do that at home. Hopefully, you know, if you can't go out and get a notebook, just find whatever paper you have in your house and just write it down. Or if you're creative, you could you could draw, you could paint, you can find a way to get something out onto a page. And I think that can be really helpful in those early days when everything is just so raw and all consuming. And please do talk to whoever is with you. Hopefully you're not completely on your own and hopefully you can open up and just talk to the people that are within your household because there's nothing you're going to be going through a different experience whether they're a female or male partner that you're with 
they, they won't be able to understand what you personally have been through having to deliver a baby but hopefully they will have been with you during that experience and they will have had a connection to that baby as well so you can try and help each other through it thank you Frankie really right really wise words it's been lovely chatting with you I really appreciate you just being so honest with me and kind of retelling I know it's really important to 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 kind of retell the story but um I really do appreciate it because I think it's so helpful for people to be able to hear and to hear kind of where you are now and how you feel now um so thank you you're welcome We know there's probably going to be a lot of information here that has got you thinking. So be sure to visit thefertilitypodcast.com forward slash miscarriage, where we will be listing links to all the different organisations we're mentioning, as well as the different episodes within this series. And of course, you can follow us online. I'm at Fertility Poddy. And I'm at Your Fertility Journey. And just remember, we're here. You're so not alone. If this episode has been helpful to you in any way, please do rate, review, subscribe and share so we can keep the momentum going and help other people find out this podcast and hopefully help them like it's helped you. Thank you. Until the next time.